Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about mystagogy, or as Dennis likes to say, mystagogy. But uh, seriously, we had a really great conversation about something I didn't even really know existed. And without further ado, episode 13 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Mr. Gaji. Hey, Mr. Gaji. I'm here. Talk to me. <laughs> can, you, can you introduce me to Mrs. Gaji? Yeah. I'm from New York. That's how we talk. Yeah. Mr. Gaji. <laughs> Tell us something smart, Chris, about Mr. Gaji. Mr. Gaji. Well, first, you don't say it that way, Dennis. You say Mr. Goji. <laughs> you know, like those goji berries or whatever they are. I really Mr. honestly did not know how to pronounce this word before we started, so I'm glad. Well, do you now? <laughs> Mr. Goji. No, Mr. Gaji. Mr. Gogical. You don't say I, Mr. Gogical. Come on, Chris. I don't know. Even Westerners talk funny. Well, understanding more what it means and how it's, uh, it's, it's pronunciation uh, matters more. <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, Mr. Gochi? Are you asking me? Do you know the answer? Uh, it's being led to the mysteries through the external signs. That's pretty good. It's, that is, uh, he was copying off of me. That was my answer. Yeah. It's uh, etymologically, uh, Jesse, mystagogy is two little Greek words, uh, agog, which means to lead. We get synagogue from that, right? Yep. Lead together. Uh, lead together, yep. Or um, uh, the pedagogue is the teacher, the leader of the children. Or there's this uh, spiritual sense of the scriptures called the anagogical, which is about leading us back to heaven, so it speaks about eschatology. And the first part of this word, uh, mystes, uh, means... Uh, secret or hidden or closed off like a mystery or some such. So mystagogy means to lead into the mystery. And when applied to uh, sacraments, it means that, uh, recall what a sacrament, whether it's a big S, one of the seven sacraments, or anything sacramental. Two elements, not two halves, but two dimensions, two aspects. There's an outward part that can be sensed. There's an inward reality that is otherwise undetectable. And traditionally in the Western church, we, we call these things by the part you can see, the sign parts. We call them sacraments. In the Eastern churches, they call them by the other dimension, the unseen part. They call them the mysteries. The mysteries. Is that why at the beginning of Mass they say, just prepare ourselves to celebrate these mysteries? Well, the, you know, what is the mystery that we are to be led into? The mystery is ultimately God's plan uh, carried out and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery that's been revealed to us. And his Paschal mystery is the content, the reality of everything sacramental. But the problem is, is that sometimes you don't see that. Right? We say in these podcasts that ultimately every answer to everything liturgical Jesus. is Jesus. All right, the altar is Jesus. The edifice is Jesus. Uh, the priest is Jesus. The music is Jesus. Well, I don't see that or hear that. How is it that I'm led from what I do sense to what I don't sense, namely this mystery of Jesus? This process is called 
mystagogical catechesis. And I imagine this would also be why liturgical decisions actually matter, specific liturgical decisions. Someone might say, well, why is it so fussy if you follow the rubrics or Father wears this or that or says this versus that? But if you want the precise revelation of this invisible reality to be revealed most precisely, then you have to do it in the way that best reveals it. Right. It, to, uh, to change the outward sensible sign is potentially to change the inward reality, the mystery of Christ. And so if the matter, the form uh, is somehow invalid, or even if, if it's illicit, it, it, it doesn't let the luminous face of Christ shine out as brightly as it might. So yes, so much hinges upon the sign um, that a liturgical celebration should, should be this great manifestation of Jesus Christ through the liturgical signs and symbols. But even if that is the case, it requires something of us if we want to actively participate in this, in this, uh, this celebration. The church uses more and more often now this expression for the liturgy called Ars Celebrandi. So it's this, it's this action, this skill, this technique, this art, uh, the content of which is the luminous face of Christ. But I don't know, if you're like me, sometimes you look at art and I just say, I don't get it. Well, it depends on where you get that art. But what, what does Ars Celebrandi mean? It means the art of celebrating. Okay. But like any, looking at any work of art, right, you want someone there to explain why is it that the Mona Lisa is so famous. Okay? And someone can teach you how to see that work of art so you begin to appreciate uh, its beauty. Right? So too, with the liturgy, you could have the, the most beautiful uh, liturgical celebration, but it requires from the participant you know, a way to look at it Right? Because this is what sacraments are, things that we can see, a way to listen to it, a way to taste the liturgy, touch the liturgy and the rest, so that we can really come to appreciate this mystery, which is Christ. Yeah, people who become educated in liturgy kind of become pretty miserable at Mass most of the time. Interiorly, <laughs> interior, they're very happy because they understand the sacraments, but when you say, oh man, I know what this ought to be, and then you see how often it's not that, it's very hard to be at Mass as a, as a liturgist celebrating rather than a liturgiologist. Um, so people... But that's true of, of any profession. When you, um, as myself, you know, uh, film and, and video production, uh, I watch movies when I go to the movie theater in, in a much different way than maybe you guys would see. And so I'm seeing things in a, in a much different way and analyzing them in a, in a different way than you would... Yeah, see, but every baptized person should be uh, similar to you with uh, film and audio. We should be expert viewers and hearers of the liturgy because uh, it's through that medium that Jesus Christ established, respecting our human nature, that he comes to meet us in this uh, world today. So, uh, Leo the Great has this famous maxim about what was visible in our Savior has passed over into his sacraments. All those things that Jesus did face-to-face -face in the flesh 2,000 years ago, he is still doing. But the means, the medium has changed to a sacramental one. And so it uh, uh, behooves us to be able to uh, see him in, the, in that way. Right. So if a priest uses the texts of the Missal perfectly, but does it in a way where he looks bored or indifferent, you can say, oh, yeah, well, every, everything's right. But there's just like the spark of the divine radiant face of Christ isn't there. But imagine if someone 
celebrates Mass in a way that's reverent, pious, enthusiastic without being self-referential, and you say, wow, this guy's mediating Christ to me, then all of a sudden, the same words and actions that are efficacious now actually can inspire a certain kind of response in the people who experience them. Yeah, very early on in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, I think it says something like that, um, that pastors of souls must realize that there is something more required than the mere observation of rubrics. They must be fully imbued with the spirit of the spirit and power of the liturgy. So this doesn't mean that now all of a sudden rules and rubrics are not important. They are the, the necessary first step. But there's something more that the celebrant himself can come to uh, encounter and uh, uh, help those in his assembly encounter. That that something more is this mystery of God's plan revealed in Christ. Right. This reminds me a lot of uh, what Pope Francis says in the joy of the gospel. If we live our lives as true Christians should live our life, um, it should we should be we should exude joy. Like people should be able to see that joy in us, and that's the result of living truly a Christian life. I mean, it sounds like this is kind of what you guys are talking about in yeah. terms of mystagogy. Right. Mother Teresa didn't wake up every morning and say, how can I put on a happy face and, you know, fool everyone? But well, she might have, but you don't. Well, we don't think she did. <laughs> but if this joy is in you and the heat of the Holy Spirit and the fire of the Holy Spirit just radiates out from you, people feel it, know it, sense it, and they say, well, something more is there than some kind of robot repeating the words of the catechism. It's a lived uh, spiritual reality. But yeah, she needed that foundation in order to do that. I mean, just like we all do. And that's what you were talking about. The, these rubrics are more of the foundation so that, you know, beyond that, we can have that intentionality. Yeah, maybe, I hope this isn't getting too far afield, but I heard this analogy to rubrics before, too. They're, they're similar like, to, like, the rules of grammar, right? You, uh, I just, know what you're talking about. <laughs> just like um, it's difficult to write uh, a good piece of prose if you do not know the rules of grammar, Okay, so to the liturgy requires these necessary steps. Now, but just because you know the rules of grammar, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to write beautifully, but they have to be there. It's hard to write beautifully if you don't know them. So they're a necessary first part. And this other you know, dimension you're talking about too, uh, Pope Benedict mentioned this in Sacramentum Caritatis. He has a big section on a mystagogical catechesis, is that it always overflows into this joyful living. So mystagogical catechesis, when we speak of or hear the word catechesis, most of us think of learning. It's, it's, it's a head knowledge thing, where mystagogical catechesis is some kind of like decoder ring to get you to understand what these different signs and symbols mean. Mystagogical catechesis is not simply an intellectual exercise. It's meant to be a, a, a bodily exercise, a transformative exercise that changes you after this mystagogical experience. Right, so suppose you join a fraternity in college and they have their own special rituals. You don't just memorize the rituals of the fraternity, hopefully they're you know, reasonable rituals, but you learn to become a member of that fraternity by doing their things that they teach you and uh, then you become uh, what you do. You're led into this sort of not so divine mysteries of fraternity, but at the highest level then you can be led into the, the divine mysteries to let them operate and change you. Let's maybe talk about how this actually works. Right, this I would mystagogical love to. catechesis. So very early on in uh, part two of the catechism, this is the one that deals with uh, liturgy and sacraments. It says, liturgical catechesis aims to initiate people into the mystery of Christ. It is mystagogy. By proceeding from the visible to the invisible, from the sign to the things signified, from the sacraments to the mysteries. So the catechism itself very early on is saying, uh, 
this type of explanation that we're going to offer you is one that helps you to learn to come to a counter Christ through liturgical signs and symbols. All right. So if that's what it wants to do, how does it teach us to do this? How do you get from that thing which you can see, let's take the altar in a church, for example, to that person whom you cannot see, namely Jesus Christ? Because the altar doesn't look like Jesus, as far as I can tell. So we need to have formed in us this mystagogical sight to get us from what you can see to what you can't. A little bit farther on in the Catechism, it gives us what I think is the key to get from A to B. It says, a sacramental celebration is woven from signs and symbols. In, it, so this is important already. So a sacramental celebration is woven, almost like a tapestry or this work of art, uh, from a whole variety of signs and symbols. So uh, altars and music and people and vestments and words and music. Maybe I said music already. Times. It's doubly places. important. It is very important. <laughs> All of these things are woven together to make Christ present. So it continues here. This is uh, 1145 in the Catechism. In keeping with the divine pedagogy of salvation... There's that pedagogy again, how God leads his children back to himself. Their meaning is rooted, and this is the, the big question. What does this stuff mean, and how does it mean it? Okay. Well, its meaning is rooted in these various categories. The Catechism says creation, human culture, the events of the Old Covenant, in the person of Christ, and then finally uh, kind of watered or energized by the light of the eschaton. So if you want to know how it is that an altar, how the sanctus, how a deacon, how a church door, how these things all mean Christ, we don't look to some decree from Pope, whatever his name was in the 13th century, who said, this is what that's going to mean. Uh, we look to these roots because these give the meaning to the liturgy's signs and symbols helping us to get from what you can see, taste, touch, smell here, to what you cannot, which is the mystery. So let's look at these categories a little bit more. Uh, the first, as it said, uh, creation and nature. So um, the catechism will say light and darkness, wind and fire, water and earth, tree and its fruit, uh, all uh, help to uh, give meaning to some of the things we use in the liturgy. So think, for example, about uh, the Easter vigil, the Paschal vigil. Okay, it has to begin in darkness because darkness is a natural sign that means uh, ignorance, fear, loneliness, loneliness, cold, whatever it is. You see, and you don't have to be a Catholic theologian to know what that signifies. You're just naturally on the natural plane. Okay, and then what's one of the things we do at the Easter vigils? We like this huge fire outside because fire naturally signifies light, life, warmth, enlightenment. Uh, it, it, it attracts people naturally, okay? wind and fire and all of the rest. Uh, the tree, tree is a very famous uh, image in uh, our, our uh, sacramental uh, understanding, the tree in the garden, the tree in the heavenly garden, the tree of life, which is the cross. So that's one category. So if you encounter something in the liturgy and you want to know what it means, that's one place where you can start to look. Does it have any significance or symbolism in the world of cosmos or creation or nature. Okay. Just a, just an organic, what, what, you, what would that image convey if you saw it outside of the church? Exactly. That's the first place to look. Yep. Okay. Yep. Let's go to the next layer. And this is also kind of uh, not proper to uh, Catholics either, and that's the, the layer of human culture. So uh, washing and anointing. And Dennis, you maybe have heard me give this example before. 
So Jesse, you have a, uh, a baby, right? So imagine... Uh, she gets I, more airtime on this podcast <laughs> than anybody else, I think. That's right. She's good. So imagine... She, she might not like this cut. Imagine she has a diaper rash. Oh, man. Okay. So if, uh, if your baby Agnes had a diaper rash, what would you do to it? Okay. Uh, you'd put an ointment or a cream. That's right. Okay. So you might wash it and anoint that area. And what would that anointing do to the... To the, to the rash area. It would remove the rash area. Exactly. Right. It would be a rash decision to use ointment. <laughs> oh, right. oh wait, right no, no, no. Anti-rash decision. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, got it. <laughs> okay. So now imagine in the sacramental world, uh, a priest anoints a person who's sick. That anointing to the sick person has a lot of that same meaning as your anointing to your daughter on the human plane. That anointing restores, heals, soothes, comforts, all of those things that happen on the human plane are happening now in the supernatural plane. So this world of human culture uh, adds another layer of meaning to uh, sacramental signs and symbols. You know, uh, uh, breaking the bread, okay, eating together. This is a very human thing to do, and the church takes this up into itself. This is going back to what you were talking about, efficacious. It, it does what it says it's doing. Well, this is maybe a little bit uh, different. This is how... It, what does it mean? What does it mean? Okay, so when you, when, when Father comes in to anoint me, what is this supposed to mean? Okay. Right? It's supposed to mean a restoration of the self, a healing, a comforting, a, coo- a, a cooling, and all of the rest. And it starts with things we know in the ordinary world, but then raises them up from that basic understanding into a supernatural plane. Yeah. In, a, in another podcast uh, some weeks ago, we talked about the, the edifice to a church door. And how it's modeled upon the uh, Constantine's, uh, the Arch of Constantine. Okay, so it has this big door with two smaller doors. Okay, the meaning of that comes from a human plane. Okay, we're victor, we're victorious kings entering into a redeemed city. So that that's another source of meaning of sacramental signs and symbols. Another one is the Old Covenant. So the Catechism gives us these uh, examples of circumcision or anointing again, laying on of the hands, sacrifices, and uh, the Passover. So the meaning for Catholics of the Passover today comes in large part from the Passover that the chosen people use, this freedom from a sin and slavery, entering a new life through the blood of an innocent lamb uh, written on, uh, on, our door, on our foreheads, on the doorposts of a house. Yeah, Scott Hahn talks a lot about this. He talks a lot about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how you know, uh, we, we get a lot of that. That's why we have the Old Testament, and that's something as Catholics that we study and we learn from, is because it has so much to do with... I mean, Christ quoted the Old Testament often, yeah, the Old Testament is filled with uh, uh, what, what, is, what are often called uh, types or prefigurements or foreshadowings, all of these things that are present in the Old Covenant by way of anticipation of the, the really real reality who is Jesus Christ. And so uh, uh, Noah and the Ark, uh, is a, is, and, and that story is a type or foreshadowing of the sacrament of baptism. Right. So there were eight people that went into the Ark. Eight is a symbol of... Uh, if seven is a symbol of creation or time or nature, eight is a symbol of eternity or a new creation. Uh, that's why eight is enough. Eight. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's where they got that oh, okay, title. Oh, okay, sorry. Very possibly. Uh, the, 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 well, all of the rest, the, 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 the dove that brings back the olive branch, the water that uh, 
that drowns the, the evil, gives new life. All of these are foreshadows and types of the sacrament of baptism. The next layer is Christ himself. The catechism says he himself is the meaning of all of these signs. And this is really the gist of almost every podcast we've ever done. Everything liturgical is a manifestation of Christ. And this is what we hope to at the liturgical institute or with the podcast is that help people to encounter Jesus Christ in the liturgy. If we could sum up, I think that would be it. So how is it that we come to encounter uh, Christ himself? Uh, and then lastly, the uh, sacramental signs uh, anticipate uh, heaven. So uh, when we read about what heaven is like, you know, John has this vision from the island of uh, Patmos on the Lord's Day. That's where he was there. And he sees angels uh, and white-robed elders and gold bowls filled with incense. And so liturgically, we do a lot of these same things. We meet on the Lord's Day. We depict angels in the churches. We use gold bowls filled with incense, uh, uh, thurifers, uh, thuribles. Uh, we use albs because that's what they're wearing in heaven. And so... What the Catechism is trying to say is when we come together to celebrate a liturgy uh, and we see this tapestry of signs and symbols, it's meant to manifest to us the, Jesus Christ. The roots of all of these are connecting us to Jesus Christ. And if we want to see how that's the case, when we have to look to these different categories of creation and nature and cosmos, human culture, the Old Covenant, Christ and heaven. This is what gives signs and symbols their meaning and reality. So if you, this is what you're always talking about, Dennis, you know, in the church building, like all of this. That I'm always really, talking about. Yeah. yeah. I, I know mean, it's, it's true. It's, it's important. You know, everything points and everything is purposeful. Right. So take an altar, for, for example. It's going to use all of these uh, things. The human world, well, we sort of know what a table looks like. So you see the legs on an altar suggest tableness. tableness. And then there's a certain quality that marble, fine marble will have that comes out of the nature of things, the nature of creation. They're polishable, they're colorful, they're interesting, they're gem-like, they can become shiny and, uh, and radiant. But then you have the, uh, the scriptural presentations of altars and priests and sacrifice all through the Old Testament. Christ, of course, has the table of the Last Supper. And then we have this anticipation of the eschatological banquet, the heavenly banquet that will go on uh, forever. And so if you want to capture all of those things, an architect or a designer of an altar has to, first of all, know all of those things. And then second, actually make decisions in the drawings about what it'll be made of, what, what it'll look like, and what uh, it will reveal. And so decisions on the ground are actually very important when it comes to a thing leading you to the mystery. Because if it's just a block of plywood, it's not going to do very much. You start increasing its complexity and layers of meaning it's not just to have fancy things and spend a lot of money. It's so that you can use that thing to enter the, the mystery more fully. And also to catechize those who see what it is and what it points to. Not unlike, you know, God uses creation to point towards him and to what he wants revealed to us. Somebody who's creating an altar, creating a church, needs to, needs to do that so that it can show us, the laity, the parishioners, you know, where is God? What is what is this pointing to in the ordered world? Right. And it's not just catechesis in terms of, you know, have a tour with the, the sixth grade CCD class. It means that at the level of the intuition, something dazzlingly beautiful and unusual and different from all other things is in front of me. Must be important. Must be important. And then, you know, you can learn all the layers of intellectual understanding too. But even before that, you've had an encounter with a thing that seems to be more than an earthly thing. This is the, the awe moment or the jaw-dropping uh, gasp moment when people go into a beautiful church. They are not thinking, oh, here's the perfect example of 1864 Gothic Revival. They just go, <laughs> wow. 
that's mm-hmm. already a moment of being led from the externals to the reality and it's got this influence on the soul and then you can engage the intellect and think about all these things one at a time yeah and remember too that these are uh, these are encounters and so use that word point very uh, carefully because these are oh, not sorry. simply pointers because uh, if I point to something it's not here it's over there that's why I'm pointing to it or I'm uh, pointing out what you said earlier, whatever it might be. Sacraments and liturgical signs and symbols are, are more than that. They're not pointing to something that's gone. They're, they're the means to uh, encounter uh, manifestations of truth and reality right before our eyes. So they're not just reminding of you what heaven is like. You are, in some way, in heaven, in the courts of heaven. And participating in that reality. Right. And being transformed right. by it. Yeah. So the altar's a good example. Um, I get to, uh, in the liturgy office in La Crosse, we get to prepare for a number of uh, diocesan celebrations. And one of the unique things about the bishop celebrating a liturgy at the cathedral is that he gets to have seven candles around the altar, right? So a priest can have two candles or four candles or six candles around the altar. You could read this just like a, a rubric out of the general instruction, or you can read it mystagogically to see, hmm, what is going on there that the church wants me to see and understand. Why would the bishop get one other candle? What does that seventh candle mean and how does it mean it? Okay, what it means is, is that the church is trying to get us to encounter Christ in a particular way. Where does she get this? Remember our sources. Well, you could say even from the human source, you know, well, seven is greater than six, so it's trying to signify that there's some, something special about this minister. But remember, one of those categories of meaning was heaven. And you remember the altar in heaven, how it's described? Well, there's seven-branched candlestick in there, front of the throne of Christ. There's seven. That, the, 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 the Christ in heaven is surrounded by seven gold. Uh, in a couple of places, it says uh, uh, seven gold candles. Or I saw, uh, I saw one like the Son of Man in the midst of seven burning torches. Right. So what the church is trying to... Again, you can look at this as a fussy little inconsequential rubric about an extra candle. Or if you know how to read, like you know how to watch a movie, you mm-hmm. know, through the eyes and ears of somebody who does this for a living. If you know how to read the liturgy uh, with mystagogical eyesight, you can see that, ah, this other candle is signifying that this minister, the bishop, is, has a, a relationship to Christ that is unique. Think what else the bishop does. When the bishop greets the people, he uses a special greeting that's only proper to him. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. The other greetings... Is, may the peace of the Lord be with you? <laughs> they're, a little, they're a little bit lengthier, but they come from St. Paul or uh, the book of Ruth. But this one, peace be with you, comes from the very lips of Christ himself. And that one is reserved for the bishop. And so what the bishop says, where he sits the candles around the altar, all of these outward signs are meant to reveal to us that the bishop is the high priest par excellence in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything liturgical can be seen this way. One last example, if we have time. We do. Uh, do. Okay, the Paschal candle. So uh, what should the Paschal, these are common questions that come up uh, each year around the uh, time of the Easter vigil, right? So especially if you're a small parish, Uh, And this is the Paschal candle. This is the larger candle that we get. It's a new candle every Easter. Okay. Why does it have to be new? See, now you're, now we're talking mystagogically. 
Uh, well, right, so because we, we we paid one hundred and fifty dollars for this candle last year, we, we burned off about uh, an inch and three. Can't you just scrape the five off from two thousand fifteen <laughs> and put a new six on. That's what everybody says. <laughs> That's right. Why would why does the church say it has to be new? And she does. Well, I, I would assume because in Easter, I mean that this is the the crux of our faith. This so is to the, speak. So to speak. And uh, <laughs> you guys got that good. Um, we we often talk about the you know. The birth of the church through through the cross, and this is a, this is the new beginning, the new salvation. Everything is new, 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 new around Easter. New life, Christ coming back to life, the birth of uh, uh, the the rebirth, the new birth of the baptized. You know, the birth of the church from the side of Christ as he kept, was sleeping on the cross. You know, so if the church wants to signify newness to us, what's one of the ways she would do it? Not to use an old recycled candle where the numbers have been scraped off and uh, reused. The church is not very green, apparently. <laughs> well, that's another point. Yeah, no, no. Why is it a candle? Well, it's Christ, our light, right? So you have this kind of light in the dark church leading to this notion of Christ entering the darkness. Of that's the world. another part, too. The, the candle is supposed to be large. Okay, so the other element, one of the other elements, it's supposed to be new, it's supposed to be large, sizable, it's supposed because to be Because it should beautiful. be different, we should notice it, right? Right, that this candle is different from, I mean, we're, we're little candles. Our baptismal candle is lit, in, is lit from the large candle. Uh, and there's only supposed to be one. You're not supposed to have one, more than one Paschal candle. Thankfully, I don't think I've ever seen more than one Paschal candle. Yeah, in some churches, though, this, this can be a problem. Say in smaller rural parishes where Father has three different churches, and he's only going to celebrate one Paschal mystery. Well, what does he do for the candle at the other churches? I never thought about that. Yeah. Well, the answer is don't bring them to the Easter Vigil because oneness is a sacramental sign that's meant to manifest the one Savior of uh, which Christ is. And the three candles would be... Same thing with the veneration of the cross on Good Friday. Only one cross is to be used, uh, or crucifix, whatever it is, uh, because the oneness signifies the, the one Redeemer which we all have. And similarly, there's a uh, rule that there should be one altar in a church. You see a lot of older churches had multiple altars, Mary altar, Joseph altar, and there'd be three altars in the sanctuary. And if the altar represents Christ, what are you saying? There are three Christs. So uh, it's not so much that it's wrong, but that the clarity of the singularity of Christ's presence is better symbolized by one altar in a church. And this is different than like a side altar that would Right. Be if it's a separate to, chapel that's right. distinct enough, then it's basically one altar in its own its own place. And with the Paschal candle, too, there's, there's some things that happen with that. Like uh, I believe there's incense in it. There's something etched in the candle. There's all these... Now you're talking uh, sacramentally. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. So what happens? Uh, so you mentioned the incense. Mm-hmm. How many? How many grains? If you were Pope Jesse, how many grains <laughs> of incense? That is a very dangerous thought. <laughs> if you were Pope, <laughs> how many grains of incense would you recommend be used? Oh man. Okay. So my first thought would be seven. Okay. But, but you talk about eight as being that new. So maybe eight. No, but you're, 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 at least, uh, you're, you're at least in the uh, I'm trying, arena. I'm trying, trying real hard. Okay. If the candle is Christ, how many grains of incense? Let's go back to, oh, uh, in a former podcast, we talked about the altar, right? Okay. And, and the bishop takes this incensed oil, this chrism. I'm incensed. And he's going to pour it on the altar, which is Christ. Mm-hmm. In how many spots? Do you five. remember this? Five. For the five wounds of Christ. Right. And this candle which is Christ, oh, receives five grains of incense Got it, five. Okay, for the five wounds uh, of Christ. It also is marked with the, uh, this is, this is uh, again, 
you know, only a liturgy nerd or liturgy guy would uh, pick up on. Well, that's why we're doing this, so people will know this stuff. Uh, It says that in the rubrics that the candle is cut with a stylus. There's a cross that's Mm -hmm. cut in there, all right? And it's not, uh, you know, it's not a sticker or it's not uh, that's on there already or that you just traced with your thumb or it's written on by a pen, but it's actually cut. Um, this is uh, this harkens back, as far as I can tell, uh, in another podcast we talked about sacramental character. Well, a character is is uh, something that has been in in Greek. It means a sharp stick or an engraving tool, a character. And so I think when we speak about the uh, characters on a page, you know, imagine you'd have this sharp pointed stick and you'd carve out the letter G or whatever it was, and it would make an imprint on the page. And so we call them characters. What sacramental character does is it engraves on you with, uh, with an engraving tool uh, the, the characteristics of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. So sacramental character, it's, it's indelible and permanent because the Holy Spirit is almost chiseled uh, onto, your, uh, onto your visage this mark of Christ. And now when we get to the Paschal candle, same sort of thing. It's, it's a literal cutting of this candle. Except for uh, it's wax, so you could just put a lighter there and seal it all up. But, but also, and use it again next year. We we you, we talked uh, about all of all of these. Another thing that we do is we we dip the candle in the baptismal font. Yes. So the the candle is baptized. Well, uh, again, mystagogically, we'd look back to our roots, and the fathers of the church have found different interpretations for uh, the candle. Some consider it. Uh, uh, a holy, uh, an epiclesis, you know, it's because it's said during that prayer uh, where the Holy Spirit is coming down upon the water. And this, I think, is St. Ambrose, makes this analogy between the Holy Spirit descending upon uh, the Blessed Mother and in her womb is formed Christ. So now the Holy Spirit is descending upon the womb of the church, which is the font, and from that womb will be born Christians. So it's something, there's some connections mm-hmm. there. But again, notice where the roots go. I mean, it's all connected to one of these different categories. Uh, another uh, interpretation is that just as that pillar of fire led the people through the Red Sea from darkness and death and slavery into freedom, that candle is about to lead through that very water people who are enslaved into sin. And when they come out on the other side of that font, they will be in a place of freedom. So here's the layer of the Old Covenant, of the Passover. So again, all of these examples. And we encounter many things in the liturgy that um, they are the means to encounter Christ. But we can do this more fruitfully if we know how to read the signs, how to, how to encounter Christ in those signs. And the key to this mystagogical moving, moving, moving from what I see to what I can is to look for the meaning in these various sources that the Catechism gives us. And you know what is required in all of this, is particular to our human dignity, is the capacity to know things through the senses. At first glance, you might say, well, the angels know God directly. They don't have this pesky mediation between you know, materiality and the senses and how untrustworthy they are because of the fall. So on the one hand, you might say, well, if God's God, why doesn't he just show up directly? Why does he have to show up through wax and stones and, what's with all the and codes? bricks and requiring all this mystagogical catechesis? And in a certain sense, you know, the, the great mystery of mystery is why it, why it doesn't need to be uh, revealed. But, you know, humanity has a special capacity to have sense understanding, 
angels don't have this, right? Angels will never know what it's like to touch a mink coat or to sit in a jacuzzi or to see a sunset. They'll know it. Which are all great things. Well, they are, right? Because creation is, is good. Materiality is good. Our senses are good. And so the idea that our humanity, with its body, with its eyes, ears, nose, you know, all the, all the sense experience we have, will be glorified and will be, in that sense, uh, above the angels. Christ brought his humanity, not just his divinity, into the life of the Trinity. And so although it sets up a little bit of difficulty now, how do we navigate through these senses that are sometimes untrustworthy? The time will come when even these senses will be glorified, even this human materiality will be glorified, and this is a a great human dignity that we're practicing to someday experience in full. Excellent. Well, uh, I think this was a a really good conversation about mystagogy, something I didn't even really know what it was beforehand, so I definitely learned something here. And now I think it is time to uh, answer our liturgy question. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, so we have an email from a deacon, uh, Deacon Stephen, and he says, What is the proper position of the deacon's hands at Mass during the Lord's Prayer and doxology? Uh, So you guys were talking about this uh, last week. So do you have any uh, response for Deacon Stephen? Yeah, this is uh, one of those good questions that's in many ways difficult to answer because it's not simply a matter of going to the book and finding exactly what it says. Maybe a couple of things uh, before we we, uh, uh, try to get as close as we can to it. It's interesting to note that, so we're in the third edition of the Roman Missal now. Now the first edition of the Roman Missal that came out uh, in the early 70s, um, still had rubrics about what the subdeacon was to be doing because until 1973. But what is a subdeacon? Well, there were it's one of the minor orders. So after uh, the priest, there was the the deacon and the subdeacon, who in many ways functions as what we would call today an acolyte. And there was a series of other uh, minor orders that were still uh, in use. They still are today in uh, some of the other uh, institutes. Uh, that would celebrate the extraordinary form, perhaps. But in 1973, uh, Paul VI eliminated a number of the suborders, leaving us basically just instituted lector and instituted acolyte. But in any case, the first edition of the Roman Missal before 1973 still had to account for the use of the subdeacon in the Mass. Now, when the second edition of the Roman Missal, which I think is 74, maybe 75, uh, came out in its Latin typical edition. It almost had no rubrics at all about any deacons, subdeacons, so or So we otherwise. went from like everything to nothing. Yeah, yeah. And then in the third edition of the Roman Missal, which came out in 2000, and now we've been using it in English since 2011, once again, it takes, a, 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 well, perhaps for the first time, it takes really a good account of the person of the deacon, the ministry of the deacon in the Mass. And so there's a number of rubrics that are new to the third edition of the Roman Missal. And so perhaps if you're a deacon, it would be worth your time to, to, to maybe give a revisit or a refresher to this third edition of the Roman Missal. Now, that being said, if you were to go to what the deacon does in the third edition of the Roman Missal for the Lord's Prayer, you will find that it says... Nothing. 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 I was just. (laughs) But what it will say for the priest, it will say he says the prayer with hands extended. And this generally is the tenor of liturgical law, or even canon law for that matter. It tells the the person, the minister, the whatever it is, what they are to do. And very rarely does it say, "Don't do this. Don't do that." 
And so we might look and say, well, it doesn't say anything what the deacon should do, so he can do whatever he wants. Well, that's just not the nature of liturgical law. Uh, the standard position, I think, for the hands, and you would find this, I believe, in the ceremonial of bishops, is that servers and uh, other ministers would, use, would have their hands together. I could have stood to verify this before the, uh, Hand, the answer to this. Folded hands, is, is that what we well, I wouldn't say folded, it would say together. hands together, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but just because in the Roman Missal it doesn't say anything, that would mean that the normative position, and at least traditionally that is with hands together, should be maintained. If the church wanted the, the deacon, for example, to uh, pray with the Oron's position, it would say that exactly and explicitly that he should do that. But it doesn't. And so I think given the nature of liturgical law, the normative position that the, the deacon's hands would be uh, held uh, together. All right, excellent. Well, that is our question for the week. And if you have any questions for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. And thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.